When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a lot of value in Chinese equities at the moment. If you think what they've been hit with, and on top of that, it's been the one place in the world where money and fiscal policy has been pretty tight. On Wealth Track, Matthews Asia's chief investment officer, Robert Horrocks, helps us invest in Asia while minimizing China's powerful political risks. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. When WealthTrack was just starting out nearly two decades ago, one of our favorite guests was a brilliant financial journalist and historian named Peter Bernstein. I will recommend one of his many excellent books in my action point at the end of the program. Peter left this earth several years ago, but two of his pearls of wisdom have stayed with me ever since. One is, the future is unknowable. He would repeat it three times for emphasis. His financial message was have an insurance policy against disaster in your portfolio and hope you never have to collect on it. His favorite was gold, bullion, or one of the ETFs backed by the metal. His other priceless piece of investment wisdom was you are never truly diversified until you own something you are uncomfortable with. His point was that it would be an unpopular investment and therefore probably really undervalued. Looking around the world, one of the most underowned asset classes after years of underperformance is emerging markets. And one of the least understood and appreciated at this particular time is Asia. China, once a darling of investors, has lost favor for geopolitical, political, and business reasons. So what better time to delve into Asia than now? Our guest is Robert Horrocks, PhD and Chief Investment Officer of Matthews Asia, one of the first American mutual funds to specialize in the region. Launched in 1991, it is now the largest with over $18 billion in assets under management. Horrocks is portfolio manager of several mutual funds, including lead manager on the flagship Matthews Asian Growth and Income Fund, which he joined in 2009. The fund has a silver analyst rating from Morningstar. Full disclosure, Matthews is also a WealthTrack sponsor. I began the interview by asking Horrocks what is holding investors back from Asian stocks. The main reason is they're not making the returns. It's been too easy to uh, to make money in the home market and therefore logically people have said well my my best chance of, of getting growth is by investing in u.s equities why would i take the the risk to go overseas so i think understanding why you've had better returns uh in the u.s than uh asia and other parts of the world is is key to sort of answering that question as to whether that continues to be the right thing to do over the next decade you know, the, di- the dynamics and the, and the differences between investing in, in the home market of the U.S. and, uh, and investing in Asia, is, is that going to change? I think that might change. And he- he- here's why. I can't exactly tell you when or when the inflection point is likely to be. But 
from my point of view, the reason why the US has done so well from an equity market perspective, despite the fact that its economic growth is slower, uh, is that profit growth has far exceeded the growth of the economy. And the, the reason why profit growth has exceeded the growth of the economy is that wages have fallen behind. So the worker in the US, as you, as you know, its share of income generated in the company is at 20 year lows or close to mm -hmm. them. It's not the same in every country uh, around the world. And, you know, particularly in Asia, you see a lot of countries where actually wages over the last decade have uh, taken a greater share of economic growth. Now that's impinged on profit growth. So whereas it was very easy for Asia to outperform in terms of earnings per share and market performance from 2000 to 2010, the years since 2010 have been uh, a lot more difficult. But those kind of dichotomies put a strain on society, and you see it in the, the headlines, uh, you know, every day here in the U.S. as to can we keep sacrificing wage growth uh, for the stock market. So I think there will be a point at which things change, and having some international exposure probably uh, probably a good thing to kind of hedge against that change. And of course, emerging markets per se are more volatile, they're younger, they're emerging. Uh, therefore, you don't have the sort of stability that you have uh, in, the, in the developed markets. And therefore, you know, investors expect a premium uh, to invest, to take the risk of investing in emerging markets. Yeah, people do expect a premium um, and they're getting one right now because they think it's likely that you will get faster growth even in earnings per share out of Asia, out of emerging markets, uh -huh. um, maybe more so than the developed ones. And valuations are at the biggest discounts they've been for nigh on a decade. So that, that premium or a greater expected return is there. Now, it's true that on average, Asian emerging markets are more volatile, but you have a way of you know, getting around that. You can always invest in the, uh, the more conservative businesses or more established businesses or businesses that pay out a little bit of income. And that will uh, enable you to dampen the volatility. You may not take all of the upside when you know, the Asian markets go on the, those big bull ones that they, they can do, but it, you right. can invest in these markets in a way that lessens your, uh, your downside when, when the market goes against you. And of course, that's what you do at your lead portfolio manager on uh, Matthew's uh, flagship fund, the Matthew's Asian Growth and Income Fund, which, which I'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But let me ask you about China, um, because it, it is the big elephant in the room. I think it's like over 40 percent of the benchmark index. It's 45 percent um, of the market cap as well of Matthew's Asian Growth and Income Fund. And, uh, you know, what shape is China in economically? It's, uh, it's in pretty decent shape, actually. It, it's undeniable that the overall growth in China is much slower uh, than it was in the recent past, if you go back to, right. to uh, just post the global financial crisis. But back then, a lot of that growth was criticized because it was growth that came out of stimulus. It was growth that came out of uh, the property market development. Well, those two uh, impulses have gone away. In fact, property is now contracting as a share of GDP. And the Chinese government hasn't been embarking on these big credit stimuluses that it, that it did in the past. So 
from the point of view of the economy, it's fairly stable. It's not mm -hmm. growing at uh, the rates that you've seen in the past. And that does mean that in order to get returns, you have to focus a little bit more on the underlying quality of the business. You can't just expect the economic growth to, to carry you through. The zero COVID policy did take a toll on China. Is China coming out of that impact? I think China's coming out of it, but coming out of it slowly. And I think the Chinese have been focusing on keeping uh, cities locked down. And they've taken yes. their eye off the ball a little bit when it comes to uh, improving the vaccination program. So there are signs that they're loosening up on those lockdowns. But until they you know, increase the vaccination, increase the number of booster shots, it's good to be a little while before I think we, we emerge from it completely. And you're right to point out uh, zero COVID. I think it is the number one thing that is holding back sentiment in, in China and therefore Asia at the moment. Another uh, aspect of China's economy that investors have been very wary of is the government's intervention uh, and involvement in private companies. And of course, you know, the kind of the headline ones were Alibaba and Didi and Tencent and the private tutoring business, which it shut down. How important have those actions been and, and how risky are they and future actions by the government Yes, I think the Chinese uh, efforts at regulation, whilst they've been important uh, and quite logical for the economy, uh, they were pursued in a way that created a lot of uncertainty and, and made investors um, very nervous. Let me try and explain yes. what I think the the Chinese were doing and uh, where I think they, they really got it wrong. If you look at the issues, they're very similar to the issues of any developed economy about the monopolistic power of online retail uh, and trying to do something to break that, uh, about access to education. How do you make sure that education is, is more freely available to people of, of lower incomes? How do you do the same in healthcare? Um, and, and these are issues that we're struggling with as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so what they did was they tried to break up uh, the monopoly on online retail now that hit some companies hard. It was actually uh, some companies benefited from it. Those second and third tier players did very well. In education and healthcare, I think the main message they, they learned from that is, yes, you can try and stop in, in the education, for example, you can try and stop this tutoring in core uh, classes because only the relatively wealthy can afford these online schools. But right. if you get rid of the online schools, then each tutor can only reach an even smaller number of people. So what happened is the price of a private lesson just skyrocketed. And if you try and do the same in healthcare, it's if you try and cut down or improve access to the to the best therapies, the therapies that required a lot of innovation and, and research and development, these companies just say, well, if we can't at least earn some period of monopolistic profits. It's not worth our while investing. And that's why we in the West have a patent system. And it was really trying to achieve uh, some of these things and making a few missteps um, that that was the key behind the, the, the regulatory issues this year. Now, the Chinese have put their hands up and said, yeah, we, we made some mistakes here. And I think the real problem is not that the Chinese are anti-private enterprise. They're really not. Mm -hmm. they, 
see the wealth it creates, but they don't have the kind of consultative system that we have here in the US. You know, as soon as you say, I want to write this piece of legislation, then you have the companies, the lobbyists, the media are arguing right. the pros and cons of each side. You don't get that to anywhere near the same extent in China. Um, they do need to build those processes. And until they do, I think they realize that they have to go a little bit lighter on the regulation and they have to be a little bit more transparent about the details of what, what they'd like to do and give it a bit more of a time lag before you implement the policies. If you were to rank the, uh, the I issues that critics of China bring up, and I've just you know, mentioned several of them, I mean, I didn't even you know, begin to mention the geopolitical issues of ex you know, expansion in the South China Seas and, um, and uh, the aggressive posturing vis-a-vis you know, -vis, uh, Taiwan. How do you rank them and, and, and how do you assess them as far as the investment opportunities or risks that China offers? Well, I'd start with uh, the geopolitical issues and say that these are the ones that we think have the least probability of happening. So do we think China would invade okay. Taiwan? I, I think it's highly unlikely. It would be very expensive militarily, very expensive in terms of internal prestige of the, uh, of the regime. Um, but if it happens, it's a, a huge impact. And I think the same with the geopolitical issues. I mean, China, the rhetoric against the U.S. is, is one thing, and both sides seem to be constantly uh, having a go at each other. But in, uh, in truth, China is stuck by the, the sanctions. So it seems to be more of a rhetorical um, fight than anything else. Uh, so that, and again, these are the fall, sanctions against Russia you're mm, talking about. Yes. So that falls into right, the same okay. category of these. The, it doesn't seem likely that they'll break those sanctions. If they do, then obviously it would be a, have a massive impact, particularly on exporters, uh, but any businesses trying to trying to get into the Chinese market. Um, the delisting issues, that's an interesting one. Uh, it really, mm -hmm. in the very long run, doesn't matter if these companies, at least from our point of view, whether they're listed in the US or in Hong Kong. And in fact, mm -hmm. it, it, for some of these companies, these, uh, these you know, sort of bellwethers of the Chinese tech industry, the Chinese aren't able to own them because they're either listed in Hong Kong or the US. So if they delisted from the US and you opened up access to Chinese, domestic Chinese investors to invest in them, I think they would be um, heavily favored by the Chinese investor. So that's one where right. I think it's just a waiting game uh, for that to uh, to solve, resolve itself. Right. Um, when it comes to the, you know, the regulation, I think that is something which we're more actively engaged in thinking about how do we uh, navigate through this. And I think there's a, a, a couple of things you can do. Uh, first of all, um, if a, if a company is in a monopolistic position, don't ascribe to it a monopolistic type valuation. Think about what sort of returns it would be generating in a competitive industry, and that's how you should you should value it. Robert, when you're talking about some of the monopolistic industries, uh, what can you give me some examples of that companies that that you know, might be interesting or that you're watching to see how they do handle competition when it comes along? 
in in China, you know, we do have a, a, a number two listed online platform, and it's done relatively well because the regulation was there to make sure that it can compete uh, against Alibaba. And you see the same thing in some of the uh, the gaming industries as well. Now, because some of these giant monopolies, they got so big and they got so much cash, they started to move into all sorts of other businesses and they got a little bit mm -hmm. unfocused, whereas these second tier players have remained very focused, true to what they do and tend to be quite nimble um, and, and tend to be pretty good users of capital because of it. So that's been one area that we've been, uh, we've been focused on. Barron's recently did an article that it was Alibaba is now popular among bargain hunters. And my question to you is, should it be? Uh, I would broaden it out, actually, uh, beyond uh, Alibaba and say that uh -huh. there's a lot of value in Chinese equities at the moment. If you think okay. what they've been hit with, they've been hit with uh, regulatory issues. They've been hit with zero COVID. They've been hit with poor sentiment. Uh, in terms of the geopolitical issues. And on top of that, it's been the one place in the world where money and fiscal policy has been pretty tight. You know, core inflation in China is less than 1% 1, 1 at the moment. In the US, they're raising rates. In the West, they're raising rates. In part of Asia, they are too. I think in China, they'll have a moderately uh, loose stance. Monetary conditions are getting slightly looser at the moment. Fiscal policy is getting a little bit looser at the moment. And, and so when you stack all of these things up, that's typically when markets uh, uh, valuations are under underappreciated and, and on the low side. Is there a way to invest in Asia and minimize our, our risk, our China sure. risk? How do we do that? There are all sorts of ways you can do it. Um, one of them is to look at the com companies that are most exposed within China. And I know that's that's slightly dodging the question a little bit. But, you know, if political tensions grow, then you don't want to be in Chinese companies exporting to the US, more likely to be hit with sanctions. So keeping a domestic right. demand focus is, is probably one way that you can minimize your risk if you still want to be in China. If you're looking for geographies outside of China, uh, the big ones uh, in the region are India, Japan, Taiwan and South Korea. Obviously, Taiwan's so you're still exposed to some of the China geopolitical risks. Taiwan and South Korea are mostly about semiconductors. That's not a bad spot to be in the world right now. But as um, right. markets, they're not that diverse. So I'd be looking at Japan and India. What's interesting about Japan right now is the weakness of the currency. And we all know, um, going back to the trade wars of the of the 80s that Japan has high quality manufacturing uh, and not just the mega caps, but all the way down the market cap spectrum. And I would have thought that a lot of these companies are starting to get really, really competitive. For me, the two countries, though, when I look in Asia and I say, wow, there's something happening there, uh, I would say India and Vietnam. Let me take Vietnam first, because yes. in some ways it's the most impressive, but less important, because it's, it's hard to have it a massive part of your portfolio. It's very small. The selection of companies there is a little bit limited, but it's got a great geography for infrastructure. It's got a young, disciplined uh, workforce. It's got a reform-minded government. The banks are commercially operated uh, banks. 
you're starting to see uh, a flourishing of private enterprise there. Uh, so really quite impressive economic growth and then the quality of that growth. And it's starting to get investment from China, from Korea, from uh, Japan, from all over the world as they see it as potentially the next uh, manufacturing hub uh, out of Asia. All right. And the other country is India. Now, India has, for, you know, it's, it's got some natural advantages. Uh, it, spoken English is very good there. It's been able over the years to build up a world-class uh, IT software and IT consulting industry that supports a lot of what we do every every day. The problem has always been that despite the high quality nature of these companies, their strong growth in rupee terms, you've always had to deal mm -hmm. with the weakness of the currency. And the currency has traditionally been weak because the country had a big current account deficit, it had structurally high inflation, and it didn't really have an export sector. Now, what's been interesting about its performance recently, yes, China's done incredibly poorly in the markets, India's done relatively well. Oh, and interesting. You've, mm -hmm. you've seen the currency be quite stable. Now, yes, mm -hmm. with the war in Ukraine and the oil price hikes, We've seen a bit of a spike in inflation, but underlying that relatively robust currency, there seems to have been a pickup in the export sectors, automotive exports, but uh, mostly two-wheeler, you know, motorbikes, uh, uh, scooters, selling into Southeast Asia, selling into Latin America, but also on the, the light electronic side as well. And that's been interesting to me. That suggests that you might be getting a slightly more competitive manufacturing sector on the back of some of the reforms of Modi and infrastructure and the financial system that we've seen over the last few years. And if India can attract the kind of inward investment um, that China did all through the 1990s, then that really makes the currency a, a lot more stable and some of those high return businesses quite attractive for the future. And I, I would just say um, one other thing uh, on people who are a little bit skeptical of China. It is far easier to run an emerging market portfolio that is underweight China than it is to run a, a pure Asian portfolio that is underweight or, or ex-China, because there's a lot of what you do uh, in Asia is somehow linked to China. and. Even you know, even with emerging market portfolios, yes, the commodity sector will be linked to China as well. But you have more scope to create a portfolio that is underweight China if you have a broader emerging markets fund. Matthews Asia does have uh, some broader emerging market funds as well. Let me ask you about the uh, the Matthews Asian Growth and Income Fund. You're invested in a you know a, a broader range of uh, of countries within Asia. And um, you know, tell us about you know, how you've managed to have less volatility, better risk-adjusted returns. It's a fairly simple formula. Um, it just requires a lot of patience. Um, because when the markets are very, very strong, you will lag. And what we're doing with the kind of companies we invest in in the portfolio is they're not the kind of companies that are going to give you that that chance of, of doubling your money in the next few months. 
but they'll look after you when when things are bad. So what you're basically investing in are the kind of secular growth, cash generative value sort of businesses that that speculator is is not interested in. And so there is a fundamental structural underpricing of these businesses because mm -hmm. the prices in the market are dictated by the person who's most fired up by either greed or fear. Um, so you try and put together a portfolio of these businesses that treads its way through cycles, losing some on the upside, but not losing as much on, on the downside. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. The last time that you were on, Robert, you recommended uh, you know, that, that we all own some China A shares. So what are you recommending? I'd be looking at international equities, whether it's a broad international mandate or whether it's an emerging market or an Asian mandate. I think most investors are probably a little like that. And the outperformance of U.S. equities has been so extreme over the last few years. Most people are probably underweight and too underweight international. And that is exactly why we wanted to talk to you on Wealth Track, Robert Horrocks, <laughs> for that exact reason. So thanks so much for joining us on Wealth Track again. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is for your summer reading pleasure and learning. It is Read Against the Gods, the remarkable story of risk by the late, great Peter Bernstein, a renowned financial historian who was an exclusive WealthTrack guest several times in our early years and his later ones. In this high-risk, volatile era, having some perspective on how human beings learn to understand, manage, and ameliorate risk from the early Greeks on with tools we still use today is an eye-opener. Bernstein is also a wonderful storyteller and writer, so you will enjoy every page. Against the Gods is a classic that resonates today. Next week, award-winning financial advisor Mark Cortazzo helps us adjust to the new era of higher inflation and rising interest rates. In this week's extra feature, Robert Horrocks discusses why Matthews Asia has expanded its reach into other emerging markets. In the meantime, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. Have a fantastic weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.